Well, good morning. It is good to have you here, those of you here in the building, on a beautiful day, uh, a little bit of a reprieve from the rain and uh, cold day, but it's great to have you with us. Those of you in Skagit, so glad you're with us, and those of you in Belize, it's good to have you be able to meet together again, and those of you joining us online to worship together, thank you for being here. Before I get into this, I just want to say, uh, as we go into Thanksgiving week, one of the things that is at the top of my list of gratitude is this church, and over the decades, being able to be your pastor, the grace that you have shown to me and my family, the goodness that you've... Uh, the way you guys have blessed us again and again. I just want to say um, thank you so much. I, I love being to uh, the ability, the, the gift, the, I don't know, the, just the blessing to be able to be your pastor. And this is an incredible church, and, and I am so thankful for you. And as I go into this week of Thanksgiving, just keeping on my mind things I'm grateful for, uh, this church is definitely up there at the top of that. Hey, we're in this series about the parables. One of the things we talked about is that in the parables, Jesus would often reveal a little picture of the kingdom, a little bit of what does it look like in the kingdom. And really, Jesus was kind of had a one-track kingdom mind. He taught about the kingdom. He demonstrated the kingdom. He invited people to be a part of this kingdom. He ushers in this kingdom. And he made it really clear that anyone who wanted to be could be a part of this kingdom. The invitation was wide open, as we saw last week. Even tax collectors and prostitutes, they were leading the, the parade into this kingdom. And one of the things that is very clear is that the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven would stand in stark contrast to other kingdoms. It would go against the, the self-centered little kingdoms that we often build around our own lives. There would be some things about this kingdom where we would say, okay, this is how I would operate, but this is how the kingdom of God operates, and so I need to change. And some of those changes aren't always easy. They're good, they're best, but they're not always easy. And the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven would obviously stand in stark contrast to the kingdom of the culture that we live in. It would dwell within this culture, but it would be different. It would be in stark contrast. And the kingdom of God would be contrasted from the kingdoms of this world. And the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God, the way we think, the, the values that we have, the, the priorities, the passions, the way we, we do our morality, the way we do relationships, how we see ourselves and God and others, is completely different in the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God. And Jesus invites us to live in this kingdom, in this reality, in this revolution that is so dramatically different than what we experience and even our own natural inclinations and in even what seems maybe intuitive that there would be this kingdom, kingdom living in contrast. I had this illustrated in a very blatant way a couple of weeks ago. Um, two, two weeks ago, I, I went to Arizona actually for 48 hours just to get some sunshine. And in those 48 hours, uh, this little side note, I had breakfast, lunch, dinner, dessert, and coffee with 17 different people, 15 of whom are from Whatcom County and have attended Cornwall Church. So apparently, that's where, that's where you're all going. But, but in this, in this uh, and when I landed in, in uh, Phoenix, I got in my rental car, and my first stop was at Grand Canyon U University. We have six or seven students down there, and got to meet with five of them. They got to show me their campus, and then I got to take them to In-N-Out Burger. It was just a, it was a thing made in heaven. It was, and so it was great. On my way to, pick, uh, to go to, to this university with these students, I saw a billboard probably three or four times between the airport and the university. And I thought, knowing that this is what I was going to preach on this weekend, knowing the, the subject matter of the parable that we were going to talk about, knowing about the kingdoms, I thought, I need a picture of this billboard. So here's the billboard that I saw over and over again. <laughs> it's a billboard for an attorney. And, um, and I just want to ask you, this is a little quiz. Does this reflect the kingdom of the world or the kingdom of heaven? 
Well, okay, good. That was not a trick question. So you're going, where's he going with this? It's real obvious. Here's this guy, tatted up, you know, pythons. And, and, and look at that gavel. You want, <laughs> come to me. You want to get some results. And you got injured? Don't just get justice. Don't just get fair compensation. Get even. You know, make them hurt. Invoke some pain on them. Let them feel what you felt. And I'm thinking about that, that, that we may not be as out front with that, you know, we're going to get even. But when we were putting this series together, I chose this parable for this weekend because starting now and for the next six weeks, we go into the holiday season, and there's a high likelihood that in different holiday gatherings, you may come in contact with people, relatives, in-laws, exes, boyfriends, girlfriends, people that have caused pain in your life, people who have hurt you, people who have said things, who've done things, who've made decisions that hurt you or those whom you love. And the kingdom of ourself and the kingdom of the world would say, you got injured, get even. Now you might not come at them with a big gavel, but there's an attitude and there's a heart and there's a posture. And I think this parable that we're gonna look at today speaks to that and we can probably all use this and especially maybe in these next six weeks so what we're going to look at is a parable out of matthew chapter 18 so if you have a device or a bible you want to turn to matthew 18 you can follow along before we get there i want to give you again a little bit of context a little setting a little background and a couple little rabbit trails one that goes deep but quick um, into what may have been happening here in matthew chapter 18 jesus has been talking about relational breakdown that when there's relationships that have been torn apart or where there's been damaged relationships, that there are ways that you can go about repairing those things, restoring those things, bringing about reconciliation in those relationships. And there's a passage uh, prior to this parable that, that we won't go into because it's a whole sermon in and of itself, but one line out of it, Matthew chapter 18, verse 15, says, if your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault just between the two of you. If he listens to you, you've won your brother over. He's talking about how do you repair relationships. It, it's not a cancel culture that Jesus uh, brings about. He says, listen, if there's a problem, don't just write them off. Go to them. And don't just post it on all your social media. Don't even bring the whole world in. Go to them one-on-one. -on -one. You, you can't be responsible for how they respond, but as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everybody. And, and then he goes on and he talks about, and if that doesn't work, try this. And if that doesn't work, then do this. All right, so, but the whole thing is about restoring broken relationships. At the end of that teaching, Peter speaks up, which is not uncharacteristic for Peter. He's always talking. He's always speaking up. But this time I think it might be a little bit different. Let me tell you why I think that. Because just prior to this, Jesus takes his disciples to Caesarea Philippi and he asks them, you know, who do people say that I am? And then he says, and who do you say that I am? And Peter gets a right answer for once. So much so that Jesus even says to him, basically, Peter, you could not have come up with this on your own. <laughs> and you didn't hear this from any of these guys. God himself has revealed this to you. And then he turns around and says, and from now on, you're going to be Peter, and on this rock, I will build my church. Can you imagine Peter going, cool, 
I got out of the remedial group. I went to the head of the class. And right on the heels of that, he gets invited into this special little uh, insiders-only event that happens on the Mount of Transfiguration where Jesus and Moses and Elijah are, and Peter's there. So I'm thinking at this point in the, in the, the three years with Jesus, Peter's like feeling like, I said the right answer. God apparently revealing some stuff to me. I got to be on the Mount of Transfiguration. And so now he's kind of maybe got this confidence like, yeah, Jesus and I, I'm not, no, we're not quite on the same, but I'm definitely above these other, you know, 11 disciples. And so I'm, I'm kind of with Jesus. We converse on some things. We, we banter, kick some ideas around, push back a little bit. Maybe I help kind of clarify some things for these other 11. And maybe it was with that attitude, after Jesus talks about restoring relationships, that Peter comes with this question. He says this, then Peter, verse 21, then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Up to seven times? Now, this could have been just a, a general hypothetical that Peter's throwing out there. It could have been specific because if you remember, his little brother Andrew is one of the 12 as well. And Andrew may have been standing there. It may have been one of those awkward moments where Peter's like, how many times do I have to forgive this bozo? About, I mean, if you've had brothers, I mean, you know what, how that goes. So he, he says that. And then he, and he throws this out up to seven times. Here's a little backstory, a little rabbit trail. The seven times, Peter was probably thinking, I am being so generous with this. Because rabbinic teaching, the rabbis would teach that if someone sinned against you, you must forgive them three times. Only three times. But you should forgive them three times. And this comes out of a repeated refrain that's found in the minor prophet Amos, where it says over and over again, for three sins, even for four, the Lord will hold back his wrath. So the, the, the understanding was, well, if God forgives four times, we're not God, let's go for the three. And so that was taught. You, you forgive three times. Peter in his math says, I'll double the rabbi teaching and add one. Let's go for seven. And he's probably thinking Jesus is going to again commend him and say, oh, Peter, you are so benevolent. You are so generous. But what Peter responds to him completely catches him off guard. Jesus says this, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. Wait, wait, what? I mean, I thought seven was being generous, and you're saying 77 times? Now, let me just kind of go down one deep rabbit hole that may or may not have been uh, a part of this, okay? And I'll do it quick. Go back to the opening pages of Scripture. There's a little bit of a sibling rivalry between Cain and Abel. Cain takes things into his own hands, and he kills Abel. Not a good thing. Not a good way to, to have your, your family operate. And God comes to him, and he's like, whoa, well, my, my brother's keeper, and he's like, you know, Cain, you're guilty. And so God says, here's what's going to happen to you. From now on, you're not going to be a very good farmer. And second thing is you're going to wander all over the earth. You're going to be a wanderer. And he pushes back and says, no, 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 no. You can read this for yourself in, in, in um, Genesis 4. He says, no, anyone who finds me is going to kill me. And God says, okay, let's, let's make a provision for that. In Genesis chapter 4, verse 15, but the Lord said to him, not so. If anyone kills Cain, he will suffer vengeance seven times over. And then he puts a mark on Cain so that people know, you mess with this guy, you're going to get it back seven times over. All right, Cain has a son who has a son who has a son who has a son. Five generations later, there's a guy named Lamech. Lamech, there's not a lot that's said about him in the Bible, but I gather that Lamech's kind of um, deeply insecure that he's like this, this um, 
chest-thumping, you know, bravado, homie, wannabe, kind of like trying to say I'm all this, because deep down he's probably really insecure. You know, and he's kind of strutting around, you know, check out my swag, yo, I walk like a ball player. You know, he's just out there doing the deal. And he's got these two wives. He's got two wives. Maybe that's part of it. Yeah, I can have two women, whatever it is. But he's got these two wives, Ada and Zilla. Hopefully that's not short for Godzilla. But he's got these two wives. And one day, he decides to let them know, his women, he's going to let them know who he is, this Lamech. And this is what he says. Genesis 4:23. Hear my words. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for injuring me. If Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech, 77 times. Got injured? Get even. And maybe, just maybe, Jesus is pointing clear back to this, the way it operates in our world. You get injured, you get even. 77 times. And for Lamech, when there's pain, when someone does something wrong to you, it's unlimited vengeance, 77 times. I'm going to get back to them. They're going to be sorry. They messed with the wrong one. They're going to have it. And Jesus comes with his disciples and specifically with Peter and says, listen, in the kingdom of God, it's different. That's how Lamech operated. But with Jesus, it's unlimited forgiveness. It's different now. Different way of thinking, different way of operating, different way of, of relating, different way of responding. And, and some of you might be pushing back, but well, yeah, but isn't there an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth and a life for life? That's all biblical, right? Well, that whole thing, the lex talionis is what that's called, that was, not, that was not a law of permission. That was a law of limitation because of the understanding of how humans work. You hurt me this bad? I'll see you and raise you. I'll hurt you worse. And it would just keep escalating. That was the whole thing of saying, no, no, no. It's just wound for wound. No farther than that. And on top of that, didn't Jesus say in the Sermon on the Mount, you have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I tell you, okay, in the kingdom it's different. To turn the other cheek. See, it's all about this forgiveness. And this is so important. Uh, uh, Lewis, Lewis Smead said this, nothing is more central to Christianity than forgiveness. It's the only way Jesus found to bring good out of a horrible situation, and he invites us to join him in forgiving. Now, before we go any further, let me just say, as we go into this parable, as we look at forgiveness, as we see what Jesus said, this is not saying we shouldn't have healthy boundaries. There are some situations where there needs to be healthy boundaries. This is not saying there shouldn't be accountability. There needs to be. This is not saying there shouldn't be justice. This is not saying there shouldn't be responsibility. None of those things. This is not saying we should enable unhealthy, destructive patterns. None of that. As you'll see, what Jesus calls us to, and more importantly, why. So, we're going to look at this parable, and it happens in three different scenes and remember, he's, he's speaking primarily to Peter at this point. I'm thinking the other 12 are, are listening in, and maybe some others as well, primarily to Peter. And he tells him this story in three scenes, but in all three scenes, the same theme comes back, and it's forgiveness. This is how it starts off. 
It says, therefore, which is Pastor Brian's favorite word when he's preaching. But we already talked why the therefore is therefore, what the therefore is therefore. All right, we've already covered all that. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like. So here again, Jesus is setting it up. I want you to see a picture of what I'm bringing in. I want you to see the picture of the new reality that we're going to live in. I want to see you see this picture of this revolution of what we're called to be a part of. The kingdom of heaven is like a king, verse 23, who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. So here's the situation. He says, Here, here's the story. And notice the standing. It's a king and one of his subjects. It's the one who's over all, who, you know, who's, who's got all this authority. They are not equals. There's a king and one of his servants. And the king decides he's going to settle accounts. He's going to close the books. He's going to, you know, call the note, whatever, accounts receivable. And one of the individuals in his kingdom happens to owe him 10,000 talents. Now for us, that's like, yeah, I don't know. I, we don't even know what that means, talents, okay? That's a, that was a, a, a monetary um, uh, currency form that, that they had in our day. For us, it's like, okay, is that 10, like 10,000 bitcoins or 10,000 Canadian dollars? I mean, which is it? I mean, I, I don't know. Well, I've heard, read a lot of commentaries that try to say, well, in today's dollars, I'm gonna stay away from that. What it would be, remember, he's talking to Peter. Peter's a fisherman. He's probably done okay, but he's not been a wealthy man. And when he says to Peter, 10,000 talents, what Peter hears is this astronomical amount of money that he could never even imagine. If I would say to most of you, not, not all of you, but to most of you, I'd say it'd be like billions and billions of dollars. Most of us can't relate to that. Some of you maybe, I don't know. And if you can, have you been tithing? But, but regardless, okay, we just can't, what do you mean billion? I can't, but one person, billions and billions of dollars. What is very abundantly clear is that there's no way he can repay this debt. So what happens? So since he was not able to pay the master, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had uh, had be sold to repay the debt. This master, this king says, all right, I'm going to cut my losses. I'm going to re recoup what I can. I'm, I'm going to get pennies on the millions. I mean, I'm not going to get near what's owed to me. And, and what he's saying here in their day and age, that was expected. That was normal. That was not unusual. If someone was that deep in debt, they would, all of their stuff and themselves and their family would probably be sold into slavery to try and repay it uh, and just that they could never get on top of this again. This is absolutely normal. And this, this servant who owes this money, who realizes he's going to lose everything he owns, including his family, at this point he's got nothing more to lose. So why not take a long shot? Why not swing for the fence? Why not be, like, ridiculous? And he is. Verse 26, and I want you to pay particular attention to verse 26 because it will be repeated almost word for word three verses later. The servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. Be patient with me. Well, maybe that was part of the problem. Maybe this master, this king, had been too patient with him. Maybe he had given him chance after chance after chance, and he just said, well, I'm, it's, I'm about ready to turn this thing around, and because he's been so patient, that's why this guy has dug in so deep. And then he says, and I will, just give me some more time, and I will pay you back. There's no way he could ever pay it back. That's why Jesus uses this amount of 10,000 talents. There's not enough time. 
in this guy's lifetime to ever be able to pay him back. I mean, he's writing checks his body can't cash. There's no way he can't fulfill this promise. But the master, the king, does three things. And with each one, it gets increasingly more outlandish, more um, unbelievable. Give me some more time. The servant's master took pity on him. Saw this guy on his knees, crying, begging, sees his family, his wife, his children. He knows he's going to lose his home. And there's just something that's moved inside this king. Like, he's going to lose everything. And you think if the king was moved, and then he'd say, okay, you know what? All right, then maybe, I, maybe I'll give him some more time. Maybe I'll even be more generous, like zero down and no payments for 90 days. And then we'll do... Minimal interest only for five, ten years, and then a balloon payment. I don't know. Maybe we'll cut his, his debt in half. I mean, you know, he shows pity on him. But then he does the unthinkable beyond. He showed pity on him, and he canceled the debt. The guy doesn't even ask for that. This is, using biblical terms, this is doing immeasurably more than all he could ask or imagine. He canceled. The guy wasn't asking him to cancel that. The guy wasn't even asking him to cut the debt in half. He was asking, give me more time. I will earn my way out of this. I'll buy my way out of this. I'll, I'll pay you back. He cancels the debt. And I'm thinking, well, okay, if he does that, well, then, yeah, the debt's gone. You can keep your family. You can keep your home. But you, you're working for me for the rest of your life. I mean, yes, it, the debt's gone, but I, I, I own you. And you're going you're gonna to uh, be helping me out. And the master does the third thing and let him go. He gave him his life back. Like, you're free. Here's life. No more debt. Because of my, my heart for you. There's only one thing greater than the astronomical debt that this man owes. It's the extraordinary grace that the king shows. He's just wanting more time he doesn't get a grace period. He gets grace period. Not just more time. Just grace. And Peter's probably listening to the story saying, okay, okay, so I, I, I need to keep forgiving. Jesus says, wait, wait, the story's not over. Scene two. Scene two picks up in verse 28. But when the servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him 100 denarii. Well, here's a servant. He goes out. You've got to know this, this guy's like giddy with excitement and joy. He's clicking his heels. He's high-fiving everybody. He's, he's been in debt. He was going to lose everything, and it's all been given back to him. The debt's been canceled. He's going to keep his wife, his family, his home, he's good, and he's got his life. And he goes back, and he finds one, not an employee, not someone who's lower than him. Notice this, the status, an equal, a, a fellow servant. And this guy owes him like 100 denarii. Again, we, we don't even know what that is. A little bit clearer on this one. A denarius was one day's wage for a common laborer. So basically, this guy owes him about three months, a little bit over three months of salary, which actually could be paid back. It's not this, this huge deal. The 10,000 talents that he owed, that's equivalent to 60 million denarii. And this guy owns, owes 100. And so here's this servant who's been forgiven all this. This guy owes him just, just, just pennies. 
he grabbed him and began to choke him. He's throttling him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. You're like, serious? Like, no, no. And then look, here's the 29. Here's where the verse is repeated. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I will pay you back. The exact same thing that this man had just said. Only two differences. Their relation, they aren't equal status. And this bill actually could be paid back. Give him a little bit of time. Maybe more than three months, but within a year or two or three tops, he definitely could pay that back. And this guy won't have it. Verse 30, but he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. I want to ask you, if he's sitting in prison, how is he going to pay the debt? Got injured? Get even. This guy will never be able to do that. And you hear that story and just realize the unimaginable ingratitude. Like, I can't imagine. Okay, was it legal for him to do this? Yes. Was it his right to do this? Yes. Should he have done it? Absolutely not. And what you see is for this servant who's been forgiven much, that his, his pitiless attitude reveals the depth of his pitiful character. There's no heart. There's no soul. And then it gets to scene three, because other people are seeing this that's going on, and, and they're just outraged by it as well. Verse 31, when the other servants saw what had happened, they were greatly distressed and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You ingrate. No, that would have been a nice thing to say. You wicked. Strong, strong word. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me. I didn't have to. You didn't deserve it. You didn't even have a logical case for it. I just did that. And then he asked him a question. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? And the impact of that two-letter word, as. Just as I have had on you. You were forgiven. Shouldn't you have forgiven as you were forgiven? I showed you pity. Shouldn't you have shown pity as I had showed you pity? You received mercy. Shouldn't you have given mercy as you received it? You experienced grace. Shouldn't you have shown grace as you experienced it? Now for us, we hear this parable, and unless you're really missing it, it's pretty obvious where Jesus is going with this whole thing. It's pretty obvious how this applies to every single one of us. But probably not as obvious to Peter. Let me tell you why. The cross had not happened yet. Peter had not 
committed his greatest failure and been reinstated yet. Peter, at this point, is still feeling kind of smug about his right answer and what happened on the Mount of Transfiguration. But for us, we recognize we are the sinners, <laughs> we are the servants who have the debt that we could never repay given however much time we want, we could never earn enough to repay that debt to our king who is very gracious to us, who has pity on us, who cancels our debt, and who gives us life. Now, in case that's not clear to you, let me remind you, in Colossians chapter 2, verse 13, it says, when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins. We could never, ever deserve that. We could never earn that. And what I love is that one chapter later, Paul says, Colossians 3, verse 13, bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive, here's that word, Forgive as the Lord forgave you. Again, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just, here it is, just as in Christ God forgave you. That little word, don't do what's expected, don't do what the rest of the world would do, do what you've experienced from your heavenly Father. And Jesus uses that little word as, except he kind of flips the whole thing around. Because in, in the, the Lord's Prayer, many of you have prayed that before. Most of, most of you probably have at least parts of it memorized. If, if we were to say it all together, you could mumble your way through and, and pass. Uh, but you've heard it nonetheless. And in that, Jesus uses this word as and the whole concept, but he turns it around when he says and teaches us to pray, forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. Okay, wait. That's a prayer I don't want God to answer. God, I want you to forgive me the same way I forgive others. I, I want you to use the standard that I use to forgive me. I, I want the, the bar that I've set, that's, that's no, no, I, I don't want that because I know I don't always do well at this. I don't want God to forgive me the way I forgive others. I want to experience that lavish grace, that, that, that unconditional mercy, that, that unexplainable goodness of canceling the debt. Well, Jesus comes to this dramatic conclusion in this story. Strong, strong words that I've wrestled with for years. Verse 34. In his anger, his master turned him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. Disturbing, this is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother from your heart. Well, wait a second. That seems so against the character of God. That, I, I don't, what is that about? Suspend your judgment on that verse because I want to come back to that of something that all of a sudden broke through my thinking a couple of weeks ago on this one. Because I've always thought, okay, Jesus is using hyperbole. <laughs> I'm trying to water this down because I don't like what that says. But remember what the theme is of this whole story. All three scenes, the theme is forgiveness. And maybe Jesus is saying this because if we don't learn to live in a posture of forgiving others, 
that our bitterness and our anger and our resentment and our vengeance are like these insidious claws that begin to attach themselves and grip our heart and shrink our soul down. I think probably in the last 10 or 15 years, every time I've preached on forgiveness, I've used this quote. So I'm using it again because it's so graphic and so good. Frederick Buechner said this, of all the deadly sins, resentment appears to be the most fun. To lick your wounds and to savor the pain you will give back is in many ways a feast fit for a king. But then it turns out that what you're eating at the banquet of bitterness is your own heart. And the skeleton of the feast is you. Oh, it tastes great. Oh, you can't get enough of it. And then you realize you've become a carcass. Your heart has shrunk. Your, your soul has shriveled. Your bitterness, your anger, your vengeance, it has destroyed you. And let me just say, right now, some of you are probably saying, yeah, but Bob, you don't know. You don't, you don't know what he did to me. You don't know what she said. You don't know what they took. You don't know how they destroyed that. You don't know what they did to the one that I love. You don't know what they did to my kids. You don't know what they did. To the, you don't know what they took from our family. You, you don't know. And you're right, I don't. And if I heard your story, I'd probably say, got injured, call that guy in Phoenix. I don't know. But what I do know is what unforgiveness has done, is doing, and will do to you. You say, but, but that doesn't seem fair. It doesn't seem right. It seems irresponsible. We're just letting them off. We're just letting them go. And maybe Jesus would ask this question. Is it about letting them off or setting me free? What are we really talking about here? Let me come back to that verse that I have struggled with for years. One of those verses I like to skip over. One of those verses I don't like to, to read. Where it says, you know, that the master turns him over to the jailer and to be tortured. And this is what your heavenly father will do to you? Notice it's not God who's the jailer who is torturing. Yeah, you have an unforgiving spirit, an unforgiving heart, a bitter soul. God will turn you over to the jailer, but the jailer is you. That with your unforgiveness, you sentence yourself to the bondage and the imprisonment of a self-imposed cell of unforgiveness where the lock is on the inside and you hold the key. And as long as you keep yourself in that cell, you will torture and torment yourself with your bitter spirit. Well, of course. And Jesus says, it doesn't have to be that way. You don't have to live in that prison. You don't have to eat the heart of yourself and destroy your life in the bitterness. You can be free from that. That's how life is in the kingdom. Again, Lewis Smead says this. He said, to forgive is to set a prisoner free and discover that the prisoner is you.
you hold the key. And Jesus said that key is forgiveness. Not because they deserve it. Not because what they did is right or justifiable. But the key will let you free to live and to flourish. And shouldn't you be willing to forgive after all that God has forgiven you for? Now listen, I often tell you, don't cherry pick and take scriptures out of context. Do not do that. I try not to, but I'm telling you I'm going to. So I'm letting you know in advance I'm taking the scripture out of context. This is not even what Paul was writing about, but in relationship to what we've just talked about. In Galatians chapter 5, it says this. It is for freedom that Christ has set you free. Stand firm then and do not let yourself be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. The slavery of bitterness, the slavery of anger, the slavery of vengeance, the slavery of, of this, this hatred. Don't do it. Be set free. And remember, see, I don't know that Peter fully understood this parable. I think it became way more clear a few months later when sitting around a table on a Thursday night, Jesus was saying weird things like, this body is, this bread is my body that is broken for you. This cup is a covenant covenant for the forgiveness of sins, and then there would be the cross, and then there would be the resurrection, and then there would be his big failing, and then there would be the, the resur you know, reinstatement into the kingdom. And I think all of a sudden it would become much clearer to Peter. The price that was paid to forgive me of my mountain of debt, the debt that was canceled by being nailed to the cross, after what Jesus has done for me, if I keep that in light, if I keep that inside, if I keep my mind focused on that, then I realize I, I must forgive. Probably eight or ten months ago, um, I heard a podcast with Gordon McDonald. Some of you are familiar with Gordon McDonald, uh, East Coast. He's a pastor for many years, uh, wrote uh, several really powerful books. He turned 80, and the podcast was, was entitled the view from 80. So here's this octogenarian, and he has this list of, of 15 life truths as an 80-year-old that, that he's just like, you know, if anyone ever wanted to say, hey, what, what could you say to me? He said, these are the 15 things. It was fascinating, almost a two-hour podcast. He came down to the 15th one, and, and this is the last one. He says, and this one is probably the most important. And I want to read to you what, what he would say, the view from 80 is this. Retreat to the cross regularly. Express your appreciation. Name your sins. Pray for the world. And listen to God's call to do things that are bigger than you. 